I'll be reading from Romans, verses 8 through 17, and that's page 939 in the Bibles in front of you. Um, but why don't we, we go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word as a way of honoring it and giving it the significance it deserves is God's word. Romans 1, 8 through 17 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Please have a seat. Thank you, Anna. Just as a heads up, um, if you see me grimacing as I'm walking around, you're like, man, is this sermon painful for Paul? It is, but not because it's a hard text, because I did leg day for like the first time in two or three months on Thursday or Friday, uh, working out and getting, trying to get back into shape. And if I take a step, it's like painful right now, and I grimace, so you're like, is something wrong with Paul? I'm just sore, that's all that's going on, kind of and everything. Um, listen, we didn't say this earlier, but I hope you've been having a good weekend. It has been freezing outside. It's just good to have the people of God inside and together. And, and we've got an incredible text. Um, Rob obviously is out this Sunday. We have started off last week on a series in the book of Romans. They're really just kind of going a section at a time. He will be back with us to finish out the first chapter. So I get these incredible verses, which actually have in verses 16 and 17, what many people would consider to be like Paul's thesis statement, where in the book of Romans, he's really going to unpack the gospel and what the gospel is and, and what the implications of the gospel are. And in two verses, we get a really concise statement of it that I think give us the solution to our biggest problem. And here's what I mean by that, is when, when I'm talking with people really about the faith, about the Christian faith, and especially if it's someone who's not a believer, someone who doesn't necessarily share a lot of the same background as I do, and, and maybe we don't, dis, we don't agree on a lot of things, I try to build a bridge with them of saying, okay, is there something we can agree on? And so if I'm with someone, like even like at a table like this, and I'm having a conversation with them, I'll often say, well, hey, like we, we probably disagree on a lot of things.
things, but can we agree on this, that the world is broken? And so I'll often even draw a circle, I think we'll have the first circle up on the screen here in just a second, that we live in a world where there's brokenness. Can we, can we agree on that? And I have yet to meet a person who I'm talking to that when I ask them that, they say, I disagree. I think the world is just fine the way it is. No, because I think we all have a sense that there's something wrong and broken in our world. I mean, you look at social media, you look at the news, there's so much uh, division and strife. Things are just simply not the way that they're supposed to be. And it's almost always the person will agree with me. In fact, always they do agree with me. Yeah, of course I agree that the world is broken. And then I say, okay, like, what are some of the biggest problems in the world? And what are some of the biggest problems in your life is usually then where I will go next. And in the world or in their life, they usually are in two categories, horizontal, so like around them or with other people, and then internal, so something within them. So a lot of people would say, well, hey, like biggest problems in the world are injustice, war, poverty. Um, internal, it's like, hey, like I think people just don't feel a lot of like self-worth. They feel a lot of shame. They feel a lot of fear. And so they'll, they'll list all these things out. I'm like, okay, well, like those are, those are good, but like wh- what's like the problem beneath those? Like, like what, what is the, why, why do we have war? Why do we have strife? And so then they'll usually say stuff like, well, hey, like the, the big problem is actually education. Like if, if, if we just had more education, then we wouldn't have the problems we had. If we had more education, there wouldn't be racism. There wouldn't be poverty. There wouldn't be injustice. I'm like, okay, well, that's an interesting theory. And I say interesting because, and I try to always obviously do this respectfully and kindly, um, but I'm like, well, hey, like the problem with that is that in the most educated nations in the world, we've just gotten really more efficient at killing people. And, and, and it putting systems of injustice like in place, like it hasn't made us any better people. It's, it's only made us be really good at the problems we have. Um, if people talk about, well, then it's an issue of poverty. Like if we didn't have poverty, we wouldn't have a lot of the issues that we have in the world. And by the way, I, I think we should have more education and I wish we would get rid of poverty. I said the problem with that again is that in the most rich nations of the world, we have some of the biggest problems of the world and the biggest injustices and so on and so forth. And then sometimes even people then say, well, you know, the, big, the root problem is people are selfish. And I'm like, man, I agree. We are selfish. And that leads to a lot of problems and a lot of brokenness in the world. But how did we get there? Because often when I'm talking to people, even though they'll believe that the problem is people are selfish, a lot of those people would say, hey, but we're born good. I'm like, well, the problem with that is, is if everybody was born good, everybody would be born unselfish. So at one point, would anyone have become selfish? And so anyways, I'm trying to get to like the root of the problem, the root of the problem, the root of the problem. And this is where I'd say, hey, like you and I may disagree with this, but I, I think we can say the world is broken and we can't come to a source of the problem horizontally or internally. And I think that's because the issue is not at the heart of it, a horizontal or internal problem. It's a vertical problem. And so if I'm talking to someone at a coffee table or wherever, I'd say, hey, like, let's maybe back it up a little bit and go to the, I think the biggest problem we have is that in the beginning, God created the world with a design. And that's where I would draw another circle and we would have the next picture of there, God's design. That when God created the world, things really were perfect. We didn't see the brokenness that we see now, but that's because we as humans lived in harmony with God. We had a perfect relationship with God and so everything worked awesome. But then sin entered into the picture. 
There is a moment in the opening chapters, and usually I've got my Bible open now on my phone, or I've got a Bible out with them, and I say, hey, like, sin enters into the picture, and Adam and Eve sin, they disobeyed the one thing God had told them not to do, but then if you actually go into the subsequent chapters of Genesis, look what happens. In Genesis 3, they do the first sin, but then look what initially happens. They feel shame and fear, internal. Genesis 4, first murder, external. You go through the rest of the books of Genesis, you see systematic oppression happening, and injustice happening, and violence happening, and all these other issues that are horizontal and internal. But what does it start with? The vertical. It starts with our separation from God, because Isaiah 52 says that our sins cause separation between us and God. And so going back to my drawing, I hope they already put on the screen, I would actually say that, hey, how we get to brokenness is because we have broken God's design by introducing sin. And that sin has introduced a separation between us and God. And we can try all the things that we can to try to fix it, but nothing will work. Because the core issue is nothing horizontal or internal, it's vertical. That's why I love the C.S. Lewis quote that I think we'll actually have for you on the screen. C.S. Lewis says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of humans trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. And so when I'm talking with someone, I say, hey, like, listen, like, I'm with you. There is a lot of brokenness in the world. And by the way, I think God has things to say, and he wants to do something about that brokenness. But the biggest thing you've got to solve is nothing horizontal or internal. Actually, the biggest problem you've got to solve first is the vertical, that you have to be reconciled, restored back to a relationship with God, that you've got to get back to God's design, or else nothing else is ultimately going to matter and be able to be ultimately fixed in your life or in the world. And I say all that to say that I think in this chapter, especially, like I said, in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, we see the solution to the problem. We see the solution to our separation from God. And it's the gospel. And the second I say that, if you're, if you're a believing Christian, you're like, oh, well, yeah, like I've heard that before. I get it. I don't know why I need this sermon. Well, I say a few things to you. Number one, Paul here in the verses leading up to verses 16, if you were following on when Anna was reading it, he talks about how he longs to go and he longs to preach the gospel. Yes, I believe to unbelievers in Rome, but he specifically said to them, the them here, the you here that he's seeking to is Christians. So he says, I want to preach the gospel to you, people who had already received it. And it's just a reminder that we never graduate from the gospel and our need for the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus. We never graduate from it. So even if you've heard the gospel now for 30 and 40 and 50 years, your greatest need is to be reminded of what God has done for you to restore you to himself and then as you do that, a lot of the horizontal problems will be fixed. When Paul was speaking to this congregation, there was a lot of horizontal problems. Jews and Greeks, the people that you actually read about in this passage, were having a conflict together. But what does Paul do? He first reminds them of the gospel. So say, even if you hear and you've heard it before, I hope you're excited to hear it again this morning. Because that's what we're doing. We're going to go in depth into the gospel and what it is. And Paul here says he is not ashamed of it. Now, why, why would he be ashamed of it before we actually get to the content of the gospel? Why would Paul be ashamed of this gospel that he's so excited to preach to them? If he says, I'm not ashamed of it, so maybe just fix my mic for a second. Well, what were some reasons Paul would have been ashamed of it that he has to overcome? Well, I'd say a few things. In this culture, um, number one, 
people would have said that, hey, you can believe in any God you want to believe in. Believe in any God. Just don't have the audacity to say that your God is the only real God. I'm so glad that 2,000 years later, that message is way more received in our culture and that it's way more accepted, exclusivism and stuff like that. No, I'm kidding. I'm just trying to say, like, Paul faced a lot of the same tensions that we did. Like, Paul bringing this gospel would have been a really shameful thing because he's basically saying, hey, everyone else is wrong and Jesus is the only way. Another reason Paul could have been ashamed of this gospel that he is about to unpack for them is the content of the gospel revolves around Jesus' death and resurrection. His death on a cross would have offended Jews or really would have been something that they wouldn't have wanted to believe in because they believed that someone who hung on a cross was cursed by God. If you're a Greek, a Gentile, the other people in this passage, they would say, if you're hanging on a cross, you're an enemy of Rome and I don't want to be associated with you. Then in the resurrection, Jewish people would have believed in a resurrection, but only of everybody at the end of the world. They would not have been really accepting of the idea of one person being raised before then. Greeks would have hated it completely because they believed that the goal was actually to escape physical reality because physical reality was evil. Why would you resurrect and come back to the physical reality that's evil? So Paul had some reasons to be ashamed of the gospel because people were going to be naturally resistant to it. What overcomes that? We see it here. He says it is the power of God for salvation. So he had a lot of reasons that he could have had not to proclaim the gospel to them and keep telling everybody he knew about Jesus the thing that helped him overcome it was that he realized it was the solution to everyone's biggest problem in life. There's a lot of reasons in our culture where we could be ashamed of the gospel, where we could shrink back, where we could hesitate to proclaim it to our friends and family and neighbors. But at the end of the day, we believe as Christians that we have the solution to every single person's biggest problem. And that compels us to get past any hesitations that we have and give it to them. All right, with all that setup being said, I now really want to answer three questions kind of from this passage. Number one, who is the gospel? Who is salvation for? Number two, what is the content of the gospel? Like, what is the problem the gospel is trying to solve? And, and like, what is it kind of coming after? And then number three, what's our response to the gospel? What's our response to the gospel? And again, I'm going to focus mainly on verses 16 and 17. I will kind of come back to 8 through 15 as an implication of something. Let me get some water. My mouth was dry. All right. First question. Who is the gospel for? We see here very clearly, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel was for everyone, regardless of your background. He says here to the Jew first and to, to the Greek, because again, in this congregation, you had Jewish Christians and you had Greek Christians. And one of the things that Paul is trying to lean into in this letter is that, listen, like the Jews receive it first, not because they're better than people inherently, but because in the Old Testament, they received the promises of God and the prophecies of God. And then guess what? Jesus fulfilled those promises and prophecies. And the first people he came to were who? Jews. And so it's not that they matter more, that they're better. It's just they practically, they are the first recipients of it. But then now what Paul is saying is it's not just for Jewish people. It's for all people. And I love these two categories that he gives, Jews and Greeks. Actually, put them, let's put them on the screen of maybe the different types of people that this could represent. Jewish people, people who have right beliefs and right morals. 
Jewish people had the Old Testament scriptures. They believed the right things about God. They believed that there was one God. There wasn't multiple gods. They had the right beliefs. They would have loved the Old Testament. They would have been people of God's word. And then they would have been people of right morals. They wouldn't have been perfect people, but they would have been just basically like your people in society, just good, God-fearing people. But then he says it's also to the Greeks. Now, who are the Greeks? They're people with pagan beliefs, believed a million different things about a million different gods, and they had pagan morals. We're going to get into that when Rob gets to preach the rest of the book of Romans, and you're going to see a category of all these crazy sins that people would have committed, that people would have associated with pagan morality and with Greeks, things that would make us be ashamed in our culture and blush, things for these people are doing. But what does Paul say? The gospel is for both. Whether you grew up in a religious upbringing and you really never did much wrong and you believed all the right things about God, the gospel is for you. And if you never grew up in church, you never grew up around the things of Jesus and you lived a crazy, insane life, things that you would hesitate to share in a group of people like this, guess what? The gospel is for you too. Whether everything in your life is really smooth or whether you are incredibly rough around the edges, the gospel, the good news of what God has done to restore you to a relationship with him is for you. And I'll just speak to this. This is the main point this morning, but I feel like I needed to say this. That's going to create some tensions like in a congregation. That's the ten- it's going to create the tensions that we saw here in this, this group. Like, let's just put it this way. Like, when you've got people who have grown up around in church and people who have not and they both need the gospel and they both need Jesus, there's going to be some people who, like when we talk about words like righteousness, they're going to be like, Paul, like, I have no, like, well, I want to go deeper. Like, I've heard that before. I've heard the gospel before. Paul, let me go deeper. There's going to be other people who have zero background in that. They're going to say, I have no idea what that word means. And we all get to do church and life together. And that is the beautiful thing of the gospel. So to me, it's a privilege. I know some of you in this room, you've come in, you've got a religious background. You're not a Jew, but you've got a religious background because maybe you grew up in church. I know others of you, like when you started coming to Redeemer, it was your first time ever coming to a church. And here's what I would say on behalf of all of us. Everyone here is welcome. Because everyone here is welcome by God. The gospel, salvation is for everyone. And here's why. is because while these two groups have a lot of things that are not in common, you know what one thing they do have in common? their need for salvation, their need for restoration to God and to his design. That leads us into the second point. What's the actual content of the gospel? What, what, what is this? Paul says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. And over the next several chapters, he's going to unpack in detail a lot of that. I'm going to kind of give us an overview this morning. Rob and the rest of the series is going to kind of go more in depth. Like, what is the content of the gospel? Let me ask you a different, like, what is the problem that the gospel is trying to solve? We, we, we could go back, if we put up that drawing of the idea of we live in a world of brokenness, oh, like the gospel is just getting us back to God's design of having a relationship with him. But let me just ask it this way. Well, why couldn't God just like wave like a magic wand and say, all right, Everybody's good. Everybody's good. Even though you've sinned, even though there's a lot of brokenness in the world, everybody's good. You've got a relationship with me. We're squared away. Why couldn't he just do that? And it's because of this phrase that we actually see here in this passage. Because Paul goes on, he says, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or to faith. Um, 
that phrase, the righteousness of God, is so important in the book of Romans. I really want us to spend a good amount of time this morning going through three of the big meanings, because I think also in three of the big meanings of the righteousness of God, we see the content of the gospel. And some people would debate over, okay, is it this one or is it this one? I'm actually a person with a lot of commentators and scholars who believe that all three meanings are right here in Paul. Since this is like the thesis statement, Paul is going to give all three meanings in this one little phrase. And over the next several chapters, you're going to see both, all three pop up in different ways. So I'm just going to walk you through the three meanings of the righteousness of God and how this gives us the content of the gospel. First meaning, the righteousness of God can refer to like a character attribute of God, that God is righteous. What does righteous mean? Righteous means that God always does what is right. He never sins. He always does what is his right in accordance with his character. It also often means that he is fair and just as a judge. That God always does what is right, but then he also fairly and justly deals with people who have done things that are wrong. And by the way, we want that. Can you imagine living in a society, for a second, where any time there was a crime committed, small or big, they stood before a judge and the judge said, nah, it's no big deal, you can go free. Would you want to live in that society? No. Because even if no crime ever is committed against you, that's how anarchy happens and that's how lawlessness happens. It would be scary to walk outside and to live in a world where it didn't matter anything people did, they were going to be let loose from it. No big deal. And you wouldn't want that if any of the crimes ever happened against you. If you ever had someone in your family who was hurt by someone else, you wouldn't want the judge to say, no big deal, you go free. No, we want a God who is righteous. We want a God who does what is right and treats people justly and fairly who do not. But this introduces a problem. You want to guess what it is? God is righteous, but we aren't. Romans 3. This is where I'm going to try to give you some different verses in Romans to kind of connect some dots, because again, this is like the thesis statement. Romans 3 says, there is all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, let's, let's be honest, this is not how most people in society usually like to think of things. We like to, I'd say, think of it in a different category. So when people look around at the other people, they wouldn't think righteous and unrighteous. We would think, uh, let's put good and bad up here. Like, let's just be honest. Most of us would have like a spectrum of like, that's how most people think. Like, hey, you're a good person or you're a bad person. And as long as you're more towards the good side, like it's, it's all good. In fact, I actually thought about doing this. I think we're going to be a little short on time because of the different things we have coming up uh, this morning. But I actually have some different like people I brought up on stage with me. And I thought about it's like ranking them of how good or bad we thought they were. Like, like you know, you've got T. Swift, Taylor Swift, if you can't see in the back, Tom Brady, you know. Some of you are like, Paul, just walk this way. <laughs> just walk this way. Um, you know, kind of a thing. Although I will say, like, Tom, I've, got, I've grown to respect for him. I still can't stand Tom, and I hate all the Super Bowls he won. But I've grown to respect him, okay? It's, it's just it's what it is. All right, you got, like, Elon Musk, right? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Then you got Vladimir Putin, right? And see, so you're like, well, yeah, you're like, uh, as, long, as much as like Elon was booed, probably should have booed, booed more, just, just a little bit. Um, 
But know that this is the fun we have when you start laughing because all of a sudden we introduce multiple people into it. We're like, oh, okay, like, well, originally I had them over here, but actually now I need to have that person a little bit further onto the bad side. That person, no, that person's like a good person compared to them. This is the game we play. This is the game we play. There's good people, there's bad people, and you want to be just a little bit better than what? Most people. In fact, there was a survey done a few years ago and it was around the idea of, man, who gets to go to heaven? But in, in this context, I should say, like, who gets to have a relationship with God that lets them get to heaven? And over 50% of the people thought it was based on good works. And the majority thought that their works were good enough to get to heaven. Only 2% thought they were going to hell. I'd actually like to meet those people. The people are like, nope, I know where I'm going, man. I've done so many bad things. There's no hope for me. But like, so the point is, like, no, most people would say, hey, I'm just on the good side. In fact, I think somewhere in here I actually had a uh, little bit of a representative here. Let's see if I can find it. Ah, uh, yeah. Let's just get you. There we go. Like, if we were being honest, and let's say this is the whole stage is like, you know, you've got bad over here, good over here. Most of us would put it just like right over here. Like, nah, like, I'm good. I'm good enough. And here's the thing is, if you're the judge, great. The problem is, is that if there is a God, and he created the world, and he's the judge, it really doesn't matter how we see it. It matters how he sees it. And God doesn't work in categories of good and bad. He works in a different category. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous, and there is no spectrum you're on the one side or you're on not. And biblically, what we just heard in Romans 3 is that God is righteous and everyone else isn't. And that's a problem. It's a problem because then also we see in the book of Romans that anyone who is unrighteousness deserves something that is referred to as the wrath of God. In Romans 1, talking specifically about Greeks, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's speaking specifically towards Greeks, but then it's interesting, what we're going to see when Paul gets to uh, chapter 2, he begins talking more about Jews, people like with religious backgrounds, people who didn't do all the crazy things that he's going to talk about in Romans 1, and here's what he says about these people. Because of your hardened and penitent heart in Romans 2, 5, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, when you hear the wrath of God, I don't want you to think like this angry, vindictive, hateful God. Really, the wrath of God is just a phrase meaning his just right punishment for sin and unrighteousness. It's just and it's right and it's what we deserve. So do you see now the problem? Let's put it this way. Like the problem that God can't just restore us back into relation with God with doing nothing is that God is righteous He does what is right, and he acts justly and fairly. We are unrighteous. If God were simply to wave a magic wand and have there be no consequences, he would not be righteous. Which means we wouldn't actually want to follow that God. You tracking with me? But this is a problem because here's what I would say is, is that God's heart is to save and restore people who are unrighteous. So he doesn't want to pour out his wrath on people. No, like, he wants them to be restored to his design. He wants the vertical problem to be solved, but he can't just wave it away and act like nothing happened. So he has to punish sin, but he has to try to save sinners. Do you see the problem now? 
You get, you, I'm really, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm asking you, you tracking with me? Because I really don't want to go on like to the next thing unless you're tracking with me. You're tracking with me. All right. This is a conundrum. So what does God do? And this is the content of the gospel. This is, by the way, what I would walk through somebody, like a little bit of a different way since I wouldn't be preaching like to them, but like I would walk through people with this if I was in a coffee shop. So what does God do? This takes us to the second meaning of righteousness of God that we see in scripture. The righteousness of God can refer not just to a character attribute of God, it can also refer to the saving activity of God. Go read later today, especially Isaiah 51. You see the idea of his righteousness and his saving activity are parallel to each other. So the righteousness of God is also a phrase that means the saving activity of God, what he does to save us. Well, what did God do? What he did was he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus, unlike us, lived a completely righteous life. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet he was without sin. So Jesus was righteous. Now, what's interesting that I've always loved is like, you would think, okay, well, if he's righteous, he probably would, like, would have stiff-armed people who were unrighteous. No, like, Jesus, when he was here walking amongst us, even though he was righteous, he surrounded himself with unrighteous people. Why? Because those are the people he loves. He loves us. But then, the ultimate display was then on the cross, where on the cross, Jesus goes and he receives the wrath of God that unrighteous people deserve. So on the cross, God absorbs the wrath of God. Jesus does. So that God now can say he punished sin. So God does punish sin, but he does it on Jesus on the cross. So that if you will place your faith in Jesus... You can, and this gets to the third meaning that we'll get to in a minute, be made righteous. Let me put it this way, because I know these are very theoretical concepts. You, okay, are unrighteous. Jesus came, and he was righteous. On the cross, Jesus takes on your unrighteousness and receives the penalty for it. So that if you will believe, when God looks at you, he no longer sees unrighteousness, he sees righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite verses in scripture. We're going to actually put up a couple of verses up there. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I started with that because I want you to see this is in the context of Paul saying, hey, be reconciled back to God's design. Be reconciled, solve this vertical problem. Be reconciled to God. But then how does he say that happened? For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So the saving activity of God was on the cross. He punishes sin. So he is still just and fair. He punished sin. But he punished Jesus so that you wouldn't have to be. So that you, when you believe in Jesus, could receive his righteousness and be restored to him. It's the great reversal, the great exchange. That's the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel. Amen. This leads us to our third definition of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is often, in Romans, something that is given to unrighteous people, where they are declared righteous in God's sight, not because of anything they've done, but because of everything Jesus did. 
This is the content of the gospel, that we're unrighteous, God is righteous, because that he has to punish sin. He punished sin in Jesus. Jesus got what you deserved and what he didn't deserve so that you could get what you didn't deserve. And that is righteousness. And that is the gospel. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. Now, how do you respond to that? How do we respond to that? We see this in this text and it's so important. What does it say? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, that from faith to faith or from faith for faith, really think of like if I said from wall to wall, that would mean from like this side to this side, right? Or from sea to sea, from one sea to another. Um, I think what this is referring to here is this idea if there's Jew and there's Greek, there's people who have religious backgrounds, who did a lot of the right things, there's people who did not. He's saying the way that both of them are saved is faith. And then it goes on, it says the righteous shall live by faith. What does he not say? The righteous will be righteous if they try really hard. And if they do a lot of the good things, they can finally earn their way back to me and be restored back to me. No, it happens by faith, by trust in Jesus. Why? Well, let's put it this way. Let's imagine right now that I'm on the, I'm a ledge right now. Okay. This is a cliff and you're hanging off of it. And you have no hope of, of saving yourself. There's no amount of effort that you can do to pull yourself up. You're gassed. You have no energy. There's nothing. At that point, if you are on your own, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die, right? You're going to perish. In that moment, I'm standing here and I'm able to save you. What's the biggest question you have to ask? Is do I trust Paul to save me? After leg day, probably a bad bet, but on a normal day, I might be able to, right? But no, seriously, like, just follow me for a second. In that moment, the biggest question is, do you believe I'm able to save you? Because you can't save yourself. And so if you trust me, at that point, you will give me your hand, and I pull you up out of danger. That's the idea why faith has to save us. If you can't save yourself, someone else has to save you, which means you have to trust and believe that they can save you. You tracking with me? But here's the beautiful thing is that this applies both for people who have lived squeaky clean, good lives and people who have not. They both have a common need for salvation and they both have a common savior who wants to save them, Jesus. And that's why salvation is by faith. Okay, so I'm like, what do we all do with this this morning? I was thinking of different groups of people um, that were just sticking out in my head of, as I was kind of going through this. And again, I know this is just a, a summary overview of the gospel that we're going to see as we dive more into the book of Romans. Rob now, over the next few months, is going to really help us like, take all this, double click on it, and really dive in depth into all the ideas that I just talked about. Like, what, what do we do with this? I, I thought of a few groups of people. Um, number one, there's some of you in here. It, can we put uh, our righteous, unrighteous uh, slide back up? There, there's some of you in here. If you really were honest with yourself, you know you're more on this. You're not even more. There is only two sides. Like, you're on this side. Like, you've not been restored back to God's design. Like, if I went back to my drawings, like, you're still living in a place of brokenness because the vertical problem in your life hasn't been solved yet. You were unrighteous before God. I'm not saying you're a bad person. You may be in the eyes of a lot of people a good person. But I'm saying in the eyes of God, you're unrighteous because your sin hasn't been dealt with Here's the good news I want to give to you this morning. It can be dealt with this morning. The biggest problem of your life can be solved this morning. And how that happens is when you trust Jesus to save you. When you say, Jesus, I don't want to do life on my own anymore. I realize I am unrighteous before you. Would you save me? And when that happens, when you call out to Jesus to save you, you will be in, in that second, in that millisecond, you will go from being unrighteous in God's sight to righteous in God's sight. That's the beauty of the gospel. 
because of what Jesus has done. So I just say, if you're here this morning and you know in your heart of hearts that you are unrighteous before God, that you need to be set right with God, call out to Jesus this morning to save you. But I believe there's a lot of people in the room that you actually are righteous. You're like, well, I don't live that way. I know that's the beauty of the gospel. None of us live up that way. None of us do. But that's why Jesus had to do it for us. But here's, let me kind of break this into two subgroups. Um, I, I'll talk to some of you who, even though you're righteous in God's sight, you live like nothing you ever do is good enough for God. There's always more you got to do to please him. You always live with the sense of failure and the sense of I can't do enough and it cripples you and you just live with the sense of perpetual guilt that you're never enough before God, that you can never do enough to please God. And here's what I actually want to say to you. You can't do enough to please God. That's why Jesus did it in your place. And here's what I would say to you this morning is that if you've already placed your faith in Jesus, but you just live with this perpetual sense of, of failure and that nothing's ever enough, you need to rest in what Jesus has already done. That in God's eyes, you are righteous. That if you're a Christian on your worst day, you are just in God's eyes as righteous as your best day. Because even on your best day, you're still depending on who to save you, Jesus. So there's some of you in the room, I just want to say, stop striving for God's approval and start resting in the fact that you already have it. The biggest problem in your life has been solved. Enjoy that. Enjoy it. But here's, I think, for all of us in the room that really are already righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus has done and we've received that through faith, is I just want to say there's so many people around us that's not their status, Right? There's so many people around us who need the gospel. This is why we're so big as a church this year and over the past couple of years really just saying, hey, who is our one more? Who is that person who they have not been restored back to God's design? Who the biggest problem in their life has not been solved yet? And God wants you, I loved how he said, remember 2 Corinthians, but Paul said, I'm an ambassador imploring you. God wants you to be an ambassador to the people around you, to be an ambassador of reconciliation with God. This is also the reason, by the way, that we're so huge on church planning. This is why I, I will share hopefully more in the coming year or so. We have a heart to plant churches, not just around the nation, but we really want to plant them here in Whatcom County because we believe that there are people whose biggest problem has not been solved and we need to plant churches where the gospel can be proclaimed week in and week out and we can raise up Christians who can go in their neighborhoods and in their cities and do that week in and week out. This is why we do it. And so I'd say, hey, even if you're living in the righteousness of Jesus and you're enjoying that, I would say to you, there are people around you who don't have it. Be like Paul and go and tell them that there is a power, that there is a gospel that transformed your life and it can transform theirs as well and solve the biggest problem in their life. Let's pray together. Mm. Um, Jesus, as I've been just thinking about this text, that word that I don't even really camp out a lot, but power stuck out to me because it's just in, in the original language, it literally can mean like dynamite, dunamis, dynamite. 
that the, the concepts we've been going over are concepts, they're ideas, but they're not really just ideas, that these are powerful, that, that your righteousness isn't just an abstract idea, but like it's real, that Jesus, you really did go to a cross and receive our punishment, that Jesus, you really did rise from the grave, and that, that really can change our lives. And so I, I pray, God, that today and in the midst of the series, as we go into the depths of the gospel and go into the depths of your word, that you would help us to realize these aren't just abstract concepts we need to agree with and, and understand and believe, that I pray rather this would become dynamite in our souls, that it would explode in us in a good way and transform us. And God, I do just pray right now for people in the room who they, they know deep down that there is a division between you and them. Would you help them to see their need? And God, I pray that they would also see that you have met their need in Jesus. And would you right now help them to call it to you in faith? God, I do pray for my brothers and sisters in the room this morning who, Lord, even though they've been reconciled to you, they just, they feel like nothing's ever enough and they just feel like they're perpetual failures. God, I pray that they would, you would help them to rest fully, finally again in Jesus, what you have done for them. And Lord, for all of us, for all of us who have been saved by you. We thank you. We realize that everything is by your grace. But Lord, now, would you fire us up, become ambassadors to a world who desperately needs to hear that the biggest problem in their life has been solved and that there is an answer, and his name is Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.